The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're going to look at our text real quick, and I'm going to tell you the first thing that comes to my mind when I see our text. Our text is Matthew 5, 38 through 42, where Jesus is speaking about non-retaliation. I would love to read it off the back screen, but my eyes aren't good enough to do that anymore, so I'm going to read it off this screen. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't know what you think about when you read that text, but I think about Captain Jack Sparrow. Now, I've got to confess to you, I've I've never seen these movies. Don't, uh, Don't judge me for not being culturally savvy there. I was busy watching college football that day. But there's a big debate in America, actually huge, maybe the most significant debate we have on how to pronounce the fourth word on the slide there. How many of you think that word is Caribbean? Just raise your hand, okay? And how many of you correctly think it's Caribbean? (laughs) And we know that because that's how the people of the Caribbean say it. Well, in Pirates of the Caribbean, wow. I'm feeling very strong in my voice now. In, in Pirates of the Caribbean, people say Jack Sparrow's compass is magical, but it's not magical. It's broken. See, a compass that works points to true north, and Jack Sparrow's compass points to wherever his heart desires, whatever he treasures, whatever he thinks about. Well, I think when we look at this text about non-retaliation, there are a couple of ways that our compass might get off of true north just a bit. And so I want to talk about those ways really before we dive into what Jesus is saying. And, And one is you could read these words about not resisting the evil one and turning the other cheek and go, oh, Jesus is calling me to be a pacifist. I can never do anything to stop evil that's going on in the world. And I really don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think the scripture would call us to protect those who are being harmed, to stand up when we see someone being hurt, to get in the way if someone's being assaulted. If we see someone being abused, we stop that from happening. I don't think this is a call to pacifism, but also don't think it's a call to more what I grew up with that I'm gonna call today, and I'll tell you why, kind of a Davy Crockett mentality. Davy Crockett said, remember these words when I'm dead. First be sure you're right, then go ahead. You follow your gut instinct, and sometimes that means you retaliate. I'd never thought about this as a Davy Crockett mentality, but there's this podcast I listen to. There's a guy named Clay Newcomb, and he has the Bear Grease podcast. Now, someone with a refined accent like my own, you wonder, what's he doing? Listen to the Bear Grease podcast. Well, it's part of the Meat Eater series. I started listening to that when I gave up being a vegan at birth, right? (laughs) 
but Clay Newcomb does kind of long form interviews and he, he talks about people in American history, did a really interesting couple part series on Tecumseh and now he's doing one on Davy Crockett or David Crockett but all of us only ever knew him as Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. You can imagine me, a little eight-year-old with a coonskin hat walking around with my gray hair and beard in southwest Louisiana, southeast Texas. So I loved this idea of Davy Crockett, and hear me, he was a good guy, known to be gentle, loving, loyal, sympathetic to the poor, but he also said he could whip his weight in wildcats. He constantly responded in life to his gut instinct, and sometimes we do too, and that can be dangerous. We love and sometimes we even idolize heroes of retaliation. In my house, the way we said it was this, we don't start fights, but we finish them. But see, that can be dangerous because sometimes you can finish it to the detriment of others or yourself. The truth is this comes from self-interested, self-protecting spirits that are part of our fallen nature. And Jesus is inviting his people into a different sort of thinking. Empowered by the Spirit to lay our lives down for the sake of others and worship to God. So with that in mind, let's read the text again and let's talk about what it says. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs of you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, the main theme in these six arguments that Jesus makes in this first section of the Sermon on the Mount is that the king is transforming a people who will go above and beyond the actions of morality to the heart of the law. They're gonna run after and grow in virtues of heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a fulfillment of the law, and it's really consistent with all that the Old Testament prophets spoke to God's people. It pressed on their sensibilities, and it presses on ours. This idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it, the, the Latin phrase for it is law of the same kind. It's lex talionis. It really started with King Hammurabi. And we know that idiom, we heard it. We grew up with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but we heard it as exacting justice when you got harmed. And that's not the intent. It was actually meant to limit retribution. It was meant so that if someone took your eye, you didn't take their life someone took your tooth you didn't kill them in response it was meant to limit retribution to a crime having a fitting punishment it limited retaliation to justice it was part of the system not personal vengeance but it had been taken by rabbis in the first century and they had flipped the idiom and they had said that you could exact justice on people but nowhere did the old testament give them that right so jesus is challenging this first century Jewish idea of justifying their personal revenge and vigilante justice. Don Carson says this, he says that the law of God was being dragged into the personal arena 
where it could scarcely foster even rough justice, but bitterness, vengeance, malice, and hatred. He says some of the first things that self-assertion destroys are compassion, forgiveness, meekness toward others. When myself is uppermost in my own affections, everything else and everyone else can be trampled on. When my rights are put first, my understanding of righteousness will suffer. I have to trust God as the one who lets no sin go unpunished. The scripture calls us to do this. You could see over and over and over in the Old Testament how God says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. In Hosea 4, 9, he says it. In Joel 3, 21 says it. In Romans 12, 19, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. See, we might read this and go, I can't think Jesus really meant never retaliate, but then Paul says, never avenge yourselves. I need some help from a Greek scholar out there. Do you know what the Greek word for never means? Never. Some amazing people reading Greek out there. But leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Stated another way, every sin ever committed will be punished with separation from God forever or it was punished on the cross. So we leave room. So it's a call to non-retaliation. Do not resist the one who is evil. Well, what does this mean? How does this work out? One author says the principle of non-resistance, it's a great disclaimer. This does not apply to governmental authorities. And that's clear from many passages in the New Testament. The military and police have jobs to do that actually Romans says are from the Lord. Civil government is a minister of God to you for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Romans 13, 4. Peter says it this way, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. See, even in first century Rome, God's word's telling us that there is a government that is there to protect those who do good and be against those who do evil. And we don't take justice into our own hands. Do not resist the one who is evil. Maybe the best picture in all the scripture is this. Here's Jesus in the garden. He's coming toward the cross. His betrayer Judas brings these soldiers with him. Peter takes out his sword, cuts the ear of the high priest's servant off, and Jesus says, put away your swords. He could have struck them all down in an instance. And he says, put away your sword." And what he's showing is that he is the Lord of the word. We sometimes want to put the word of God under our authority. See, when, when people talk about sources of authority for morality in Christianity, we say scripture is number one, then there's reason, then there's tradition, then there's our experience. And what we often want to do is go, hey, I know Bible, the Bible says this, but I've always believed this. I always understood it this way. And what we're doing is we're taking our reason and putting it 
over the authority of Scripture in our lives. Well, we can't do it because if it's not chief in authority, then it's lost its power in our lives. We are under the authority of the Word. And so Jesus explains the intention of the Word for His people. And what He's calling us to is a new way of living in the world that moves us to self-examination, to be a different kind of people. Protect those around you, yes. Stop abuse from happening, yes. Retaliate, no. And he's the model. He's the model, and so he's gonna challenge us to think about how we might respond when people attack our dignity, when they attack our security, when they attack our liberty, and when they attack our property. So he says, if one slaps you on one cheek, turn and give him the other cheek as well. Well, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, I remember eight years old, a bully on the playground, and my dad said, son, if you defend yourself, if you strike back when somebody hits you, you don't worry about getting in trouble, I'll take you fishing. That was not the right thing to say to me. But see, it's different than the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 50 describes. Isaiah 50 speaks of this suffering servant who's going to come. And he says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens to hear my ear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Then verse six says, I gave my back to those who strike it and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. See, when Jesus calls his people to turn the other cheek, he's calling them to something they do not have in themselves, but he has in himself because he is going to lay his life down. He's calling them to kind of a reiteration of what he's already said earlier in the sermon. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the slap was an embarrassment. It is today, it was for them. It was an attack on a person's dignity. When someone strikes at our dignity, we want to retaliate. We don't want to leave protection and defense of our dignity to God. But we have to know that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one day we will live with him as his people and we can trust him. Now here's the truth. Most of us aren't gonna get physically slapped, actually. You might, but most aren't going to. But right now, in in the sort of brokenness that we live in, what does turning the other cheek mean for you and me? What does it mean to be humble and gentle when maybe people are mischaracterizing you or speaking evil about you or speaking of you in ways that just simply aren't true? What does it mean to live and continue about the following of Jesus. I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't say this in 930, but I'll tell you there was a, a time years ago when 
I started getting screenshots from something someone was saying about Temple Bible Church online. And it kind of bugged me when I got three, but it really bugged me when it got to about 15 or 20. And I called a friend who lives far away and said, man, I don't know what to do about this. I really don't want to engage in this. And he said, I think the best thing that you can do is just keep doing what you guys are doing. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to follow Jesus and you just keep doing what you're doing. We don't retaliate. Maybe something's going on in your life right now and you desperately want to avenge yourself. But are you going to trust you or are you going to trust God and leave room for his vengeance? We don't retaliate when people attack our dignity. We don't retaliate when people attack our security. Let him have your cloak as well. We need to look at the words that Jesus says here. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If he takes your coat, offer him the shirt on your back. The message says it like this, if someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. Do what the law requires and then go further. When you do this, God becomes your defense and provider. It's this radically unselfish attitude that will amaze the world, but it brings the blessing of our God on our lives. See, it was a social norm in Israel. If someone sued you for your tunic, you could give it to them, but you couldn't sue someone for their cloak. It was against the law. Exodus 22 said it this way. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering. It's his cloak for his body, and and what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear him. See, the lawsuit was for a tunic. You couldn't sue someone for the cloak, but Jesus says, no, you go above and beyond laying down your rights. Now, you could read this and go, well, what is this talking about? If somebody asks for my clothes, am I supposed to strip down naked? No, this is not Austin in the 1960s. (laughs) It's a question of vindication. Am I going to be the chief vindicator of my life or is God? Do I have to have my human broken justice now or can I play the long game? One dead theologian says it like this. He says, await God's vindication. To seek revenge is to hunger and thirst not for God's righteousness but for the justice of the darkness. To seek redress is to abandon the blessing of the merciful who treat others with concern and compassion at their own expense. To seek justice of Caesar's court is to seek human redress rather than God's blessing as those who are persecuted. To haul an offender into court is to take advantage of a channel available to one as the subject of the darkness and thereby to become insipid salt and light that is being suffocated by the darkness. It is, in effect, to bear witness to the dominion of death, to assert that the illusory victory of the darkness is of supreme value and thereby become a worshiper of death and an acolyte of the dark lord, Satan. It's a question of who is it that will make sure you have enough? You may go through some hard times, but will you have enough? Is it you or is God gonna do that? 
See, people in this life, if you live long enough, they'll attack your dignity. They'll attack your sense of security. They'll attack your sense of liberty. If anyone asks you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles, well, what is Jesus talking about there? Do I have to do more exercise than I've been doing walking that loop at Lions Park? No, there's something going on in, in culture. A Roman soldier could demand that anyone in the empire carry his load for up to a Roman mile, which was a thousand paces. It was known as impressment, and it was no easy task. The pack could weigh up to 100 pounds. It had food rations in it. It had a hand mill to grind corn. It had a pot and a pan, an extra set of clothes. It had two wooden stakes, and then it had its shield on the left side. Well, walking one mile was actually a a limiting protection. Soldiers couldn't demand you go any further than that. And Rome made them go the first mile, but Jesus is saying, no, go above and beyond. Have compassion that moves you to the second mile. Now, this is a supernatural attitude. These people don't have it within themselves to do. It would confound not just Roman soldiers, but their own sensibilities. So it's a gospel opportunity. It's not natural. It's spiritual. Jesus is calling his people to, and Matthew is reminding his readers that we serve because we've been served. We share good news that's been shared with us. We lay down our lives because Jesus laid his life down and took it up again, and he sent the Spirit to transform us into a people who have minds that are bent toward the kingdom. See, the first mile was giving to Caesar what was Caesar's. The second mile was giving to God what is God's. I can't imagine anything that would be like that for us today. Maybe the closest thing is that in colonial days, it would be like a British soldier walking up to a colonial American and asking him to carry his pack. And the colonial American picks up that big pack of tea and crumpets and takes it not one mile, but two. It's going above and beyond. How might the Lord be asking you to go above and beyond in service to someone? Maybe in a way you don't want to. Maybe there's someone at your workplace that it is so hard to get along with. You're under their authority and you just don't want to be. How might Christ call you to live in a supernatural way? that blows their minds, your attitude's so different than what they would expect in walking the extra mile. The last thing that Jesus addresses is that of property. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, Jews would rather die than beg. I think Jesus is speaking of deep need here and the message is don't lecture them feed them don't shame them share with them what god has given you without expecting anything in return charles spurgeon said it this way be generous a miser is no follower of jesus don carson says christ will not tolerate a mercenary tight-fisted penny-pinching attitude Well, Chase, what do you want me to do? Give all my money away? Well, no, I don't think for most of us that's what God would call us to do. You have things you're responsible for, people you're responsible for. And I'll tell you, for me personally, I rarely ever give anybody cash today because you can enable people. We got all kinds of questions about this, but 
but it can be about our heart attitude and how we look at a certain sort of people. Do you have a picture of homelessness that's void of compassion? Do you have a picture of homelessness that's void of compassion? I, when I was a youth intern in Beaumont, Texas, I, I got asked for money all the time. I was at a downtown church. And, uh, and one day I was leaving work and I was going to another place close to downtown. I was walking and a, a guy came up to me. And he started asking for money, asking for help, explaining why he needed help. And uh, I kind of thought he was a little bit crazy, honestly. And he goes, I'm not crazy. And he, he pointed across the street and said, I used to own that business. And I thought, oh, he is crazy. But he said, I'm not kidding. I used to own that business. And one day I started hearing these voices in my head. And I couldn't get them out. And they just began to torment me. I lost my wife. I lost my family. I lost my job. That was mine. Well, right as he says, that was mine. A lady walks out and says, hello, Mr. Simmons, and turns and walks to her car. And he said, that was my personal assistant. I just need some help. And I realized that in me, there was kind of this attitude but it turned away from compassion. I had forgotten, maybe what some of you have forgotten, that behind every face, behind every need, there's a story. And we've all got brokenness inside of us. It just manifests itself in different ways. Jonathan Pennington says, our motive for helping others is simple. We've been helped by our Heavenly Father where our need for forgiveness as sinful beggars and spiritual paupers was greatest. We've been blessed and showered with blessings above all in this world. So we give to those who ask of us and don't demand it back. Maybe sometimes it, it would be a proactive giving, maybe a proactive service to those in need. Maybe it's that God would have you volunteer at Feed My Sheep or Helping Hands or Churches Touching Lives for Christ or other ministry partners. Globally in Ukraine and Rwanda, when we partner with sister churches, we are partnering with people who are sharing the gospel and caring for the poor in their communities. Our team is gonna go to Rwanda and partner with pastors, some of whom are barely making it. And they're regularly giving food and clothing and school fees to families in their community. They give because they've been given to and we give because we follow Jesus. He is our true north. He is the king of sacrificial service. So when you think about this call to not retaliate and not resist the one who is evil, he did not retaliate. And he empowers his people not to retaliate. He could have called legions of angels down from heaven. And instead he said, Father, forgive them. We turn the other cheek because he did all the more. He not only didn't pick up a sword, he laid his life down. He gave above and beyond. He went above and beyond. This is who we follow. See, Jesus met beggars with compassion, the greatest of needs we could not meet. Beggars deserving justice from God, hoping for grace, and he gave us mercy. Well, how do we do this? 
you might listen to this call and go, I don't have it in me. And I say, you're right, I don't either. Only by the Spirit's power can we walk as we're called to walk. George Mueller, who had children's homes in England, he said this, he said, you have to die to you. He said, there was a day when I died, I utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his taste. I died to the world, to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. See, it's a work of the Spirit. Jesus gave us new life so we might lay our lives down or die to ourselves in acts of worship for Him and love for people. God the Father plants a Spirit inside all those who are in Christ and He makes us new. He radically transforms us. And we stand in a long line of people who died to themselves for the sake of others, broken people who needed all kinds of help, and still God was at work in them. God was at work in Abram, who became Abraham when he looked at his nephew Lot and gave him the best part of the land. It was God at work in Joseph when he forgave and fed his brothers instead of having them executed or imprisoned in Egypt for life. It was God who was at work in David. Though he could have killed Saul, he let him live over and over again. It was God at work in Stephen who prayed for those who were stoning him. And of course, we see it most clearly in Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He died and then he rose from the dead, conquering death and its dominion and giving life to all who believe. Well, how do we do this? I think empowered by the Holy Spirit, we look to Jesus as our true north. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Unless a man renounces everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Here is the call of Jesus on us, and this is why we know this takes a work of the Spirit in us. We give all that we are for all that he is. See, the gospel is free. It just costs everything. We give all that we are for all that he is because he is worthy and because this is the path, the supernatural, the unnatural path to fullest joy. What a world it would be when people were not violent toward one another, when, when people shared with one another freely, when we loved as we've been loved. Could we pray for that? God, we just confess aloud, we don't have it in us to be this sort of people. We need the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to be alive in us, to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we look in your word, believe it and obey it. We need you to make us different. We need you to make us holy. So we pray in Jesus' name that you would do just that. Make us holy as you are. 
And may the world be confounded by it and drawn to Jesus by it. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.